And so this is the third part, the last part of my uh, ongoing series on God's amazing love. The essence of salvation, John 3, 16, what God did to us and for us. And what does it mean to be born again? And so we're going to drill down again at one more time. And we're going to discuss today what happens after you're born again. What does God expect from you? How do you walk with this new spirit? And I'm going to spend the next four or five weeks after this speaking about discipleship. Uh, so that you'll understand that even further. But what you understand here is that I've come to recognize this, that salvation really is almost looked at as a two-day event. In day one, you come and ask God to come into your heart. You bow for the Savior. You're lost, and you need a Savior. And God reaches across eternity, and he fills your heart with the Holy Spirit. And that is day one. But you see, a lot of people, much of the Christian world is parked in day one. Because day two means you take up your cross and you walk with him for the rest of your life. And so many putative Christians never do that. Many of them, you see, have not been taught that. Uh, and so there are whole denominations, really, that are camped out in the day one experience. And so we want to focus on what God expects from us, from Scripture, because it's all about Scripture. And so when we are born again, we have now a new nature. Uh, the new attire, effectively, has come into our life. But what happens to your flesh? Because you see, your flesh is still with you. Now, Paul understood this concept well, and he spoke about it in Romans 7, verse 18. And there he said, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Can you imagine someone as great as the Apostle Paul who would write two-thirds of the New Testament speaking about the fact that I know what is good, I want to do what is good, and yet my flesh drags me down. Well, that's something that we're all very familiar with, even as we are born again. And so Paul's old nature, you see, struggled constantly, constantly against the new nature, and that's what's going on with you. The new nature, you see, can do nothing bad, nothing bad. Yet the old nature that you're still bound up with can do nothing good. Uh, so there will always be this internal conflict within yourself. Uh, and John spoke eloquently on this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, where he said, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It's that simple. So don't go around and say, I'm a born-again Christian. I no longer sin. I have no sin in me. Please. You know, I just had a lady uh, some years ago in one of my Bible classes that I used to say, that I find myself, even before I put my foot on the ground getting out of bed, uh, that I've already committed sins in my mind. And she said, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> she said, there's something, you need to be saved. You're already sinning in your mind before you've gotten out of bed. And I said, no, madam, you don't understand the nature of what we're dealing with. You don't understand the nature of flesh. 
and what the carnal mind is like. Yes, we're saved, and yet even in that saved nature, we're struggling with the flesh. Make no mistake about it. And that's what this message is about, so that you understand that in your walk with God. And so the question becomes for you today, is that how does the born-again believer secure spiritual victory? You want to be victorious. You want to have a walk that is victorious, that elevates God, that spreads the gospel. And so, first of all, you have to think of your old nature as dead. Uh, And if you look at Romans 6, uh, verse 11, Paul again, who else spoke eloquently in this? In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ in Jesus. And that's what we do. We, We know that our old nature is dead. And as we walk with God, we elevate the new nature, and we do that. Uh, And in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, Paul again spoke on this same issue. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Put to death. Put to death, meaning you have a responsibility. God has given you the Holy Spirit. He has empowered you with the will to fight these tendencies. And look at these tendencies. Look what the earthly nature is. Sexual immorality. And don't tell me, oh, I'm 80 years old. Those days are behind me. Really? Really? I know some of you get up at three o'clock in the morning and go on the computer and I don't want to know what you're doing. All right? But I know that so many of us are locked down on these issues and tied up, unfortunately, even with pornography. You know, I've seen some of the statistics that talk about pastors, an incredible number, percentage of pastors tied up with this. You are denying the flesh if you don't realize this is a part of the human nature. And so you need to deny it. You need to walk away from it. Impurity, lust. Lust in every sense of the way, not just sexual lust, but lust for power, lust for goods, lust for property, lust for money, avariciousness in every possible way. That is the flesh. That's what drags us down, and God has given us the power to fight it. Uh, And and it's all idolatry. Uh, And so God has given us this sense. He's given us this spirit as born-again creatures to walk in power with him. Now, this requires responsibility on our own part. We have to ask God to keep us from sin. We have to ask God to strengthen us and walk with us. And then we have to feed the new nature as we starve the old. That's your responsibility. And what do I mean by doing that, feeding the new nature? You have to study the Bible. You have to pray. You have to walk with God. You have to be part of some Bible and life groups. And you have to come to church, okay? You have to come to church. I know it's not easy to come to church. I know that it's difficult, especially as we get older, but you have to commit yourself because God sees your walk. He sees your commitment. He sees how dedicated you are. Yes, it's raining. All right, I'll go. I know, whenever it's raining, I'll say to Linda, oh gosh, we're going to drop about 15% today. It's raining. That's the big issue in Naples, rain, oof, oof, I can't go to church, it's raining. I mean, can you imagine if God's watching this on a video and looking at you and saying, oh boy, these people are lost. 
Well, there's, you have to understand, this is what God expects from you, that you will walk in the spirit, that you will lift up that, that spiritual nature. Uh, and so Galatians 5, 15, again, our brother Paul says it well, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There it is. When you walk by the Spirit, when you walk with the will of God, you will not fall prey to the things of the flesh. You'll be strengthened. You'll be prepared in every way. So read the Bible. Pray. Make Christian friends. Come out to church and worship. And as you do this, you will find yourself increasingly victorious. Uh, And so you will have the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is the, the, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And what does that contain? It's love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, and self-control. Can you imagine that God has given you all that? It's buried within your spirit. And I look at this list and I say, oh, God, help me. Help me, Lord. I'd just like to have one of these spirits in my life, and yet he has given us all of the fruit. You understand? He has given us all of the fruit. Uh, And I have to say that I am so blessed sometimes when I see people who I know sacrifice to come to church. I see people in wheelchairs, hurting, who come out to church. They preach to me. In fact, they preach to me more than I preach to myself because I see the commitment I see the commitment to come out to serve God even when it hurts, even when it's not easy. You understand? And so Jesus, you see, spoke to Nicodemus about his coming death. He spoke to him about his coming death. That was, that was the, one of the key reasons Jesus needed to speak to Nicodemus, and we focused on this. Here he is, the most religious guy in all of Israel, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, the top guy, Israel's teacher, and Jesus is teaching him about what it means to be born again. And it's as if Jesus is speaking a foreign language. Well, as part of that, Jesus talked to him about the fact that the Son of Man had to die. He had to die. And so Jesus again cited Scripture. And for those of you who think that the Old Testament isn't important, Jesus relied heavily, heavily in his teaching on the Old Testament. And so Jesus referred to the serpent raised on a pole by Moses. And you know that story. We've talked about it before, where the people of Israel who, who were revolting and angry at Moses because Moses had the nerve to take them out of Egypt where life was good. You know, we don't realize how good life was when you're making bricks in mud and being whipped Sometimes we forget what life was like before we were saved. Am I right? We forget about those good days, days of debauchery, days of getting up in the morning and not even knowing where you are, right? Living a life where you go from hither to yon, where you're like in a pinball machine. We forget about that. And so there they were revolting against Moses. You took us out of Egypt. We had such good food there. It was good. And so God punished them for their revolt. God punished them, and he sent serpents, vipers, and they were bit. And anyone who bit would die unless, God told Moses, put a bronze serpent up on a pole and tell the people to raise your head and look at that pole in obedience, and if you do, you will be 
cured. Now, he didn't say to worship the serpent. He said, look at it, in obedience, in obedience, ask God to intervene. And so Jesus told Nicodemus that just like that, the Son of Man would be lifted up also. Jesus was effectively foreshadowing his own death. It would be the ultimate gift of grace for humanity. And so Nicodemus really didn't understand it, but Nicodemus, we know, would go home and look at the Scriptures, and Nicodemus ultimately would come to faith. Paul, again, spoke again on this key issue, the issue of grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. You are saved totally by the mercy and grace of God. Can I get an amen? You understand that you did nothing whatsoever to be saved. All you did was recognize you were lost and there was a blackness in your hole. And in that poverty of spirit, as you mourned you in your spiritual condition, you reached out to God and said, I need a savior. Lord, I'm doomed. And God reaches across eternity. And he saves you. And he seals you instantaneously with the Holy Spirit. And life will never be the same for you. And so here Jesus is again demonstrating the importance of the Old Testament as a foreshadowing of his own death. Look, Jesus is emphasizing here, as to the serpent, that humanity could never be cured by our own intervention. They had to be cured by looking up at the bronze serpent. There is no human intervention for the cure. You will die unless you look up at the bronze serpent. There were no rights, absolutely no rights of human works that would have saved those Israelites. And it's the same today. There would be no restoration of humanity based on the works of humanity. It is totally the grace of God that takes place with your faith. There's a great verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 15 which talks about what it was like before grace, what it was like before Jesus, what it was like before salvation. And you should remember this today as you exit the church. And there it says, whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. God will call the past to account. Whatever you did before Jesus, whatever you did before you were saved, it sits there on an eternal videotape. There is no forgiveness. There is no wiping the slate free. God will call the past to account. All of that, all of that was changed on the cross. All of it. Think about it. Think about everything that you've ever done in your life if all of it would be sitting there for God to review and you to sit there and explain it away as your sinful life comes back to haunt you. And now God puts Jesus on the cross. Jesus dies on the cross, holding your name in his hand, and now that sin is as far removed as the east is from the west. 
That's the amazing love of God. And so what does this mean? This means that even if you were to decide, oh, my New Year resolution, January 1, everything's going to be different now this year. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I have decided this new year I am no longer going to sin. Bingo. That's your first sin. Pride, arrogance, lack of humility. How's that? You you didn't even get off your knees, all right? But you've just committed like three sins, all right? You understand that it is impossible in your human condition to stop sinning. It is impossible. That is why salvation is critical. That's why this message needs to be understood and be delivered to people that have not been saved. This becomes important. We need to understand God's instruction to the Hebrew people. They were not told to pray to the serpent. They were told to look up at the serpent. Uh, And you know, this false aspect of religion, it's amazing how the Jewish people were idolaters. You see, they came out of Egypt. And Egypt was there for them for 400 years, and that culture was full of idolatry. That's all they knew. And so what do they wind up doing? They wind up over the the succeeding 400 years after they come out of of, uh, Egypt, they wind up praying to the serpent. They're burning incense to the serpent. Can you imagine that God sees this? Until God ordered King Hezekiah to burn the serpent. Take that serpent and destroy it because that's not the nature of salvation. It was obedience to look up, but you weren't saved by that idol. You know, and so we have to understand this again, how God causes us to act. And so to understand the full nature of salvation and the love of God, it is important to note that Jesus was a gift planned from the foundation of the world. Let me say that and make it clear. I know so many good Christians will look at our Jewish brethren and in some way try to fix blame for Christ's death. Uh, And you need to understand that it was all within the will of God. Yes, they were the evildoers. There's no question about it. And there's no question that sin lies at that door for what they did. But the Romans were partners with them, okay? And so the Romans also have fault. But all of it was within the perfect will of God from the very foundation of the world. And we know that Isaiah, written 800 years before Christ would be crucified, speaks in detail, crystal detail about the coming crucifixion and what it means. And and Peter himself, Peter, would speak with so profound eloquence on the day of Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2, 23. And if you want to understand the nature of being born again, the nature of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Take a look at Peter. Take a look at his speech. Take a look at the man who denied Jesus three times, who walked away when Jesus needed him most, who refused to say he was part of the group of people that followed Jesus, and in fact would actually blaspheme to prove that he was not part of Jesus. And now, as the Holy Spirit descends on the upper room and 120 people are filled with the Holy Spirit as the beginning of the church age takes place and thousands of people from all over the world sit outside that room in the streets of Israel and I've been there and I've seen it and I've looked up to where that upper room is and these streets are narrow and people from all over the world are listening to tongues of fire descend on the 120 people and now you see Peter 
this timid man who refused to acknowledge Christ, now filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at the difference of this man once the Holy Spirit descends. Look here in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man, that's Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. How about that? You never heard a prosecutor indict anybody with that degree of ferocity. You did it. You killed him, along with the help of wicked men. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You see, the Holy Spirit convicts. It convicts, and what happened? 2,000 people came to faith. 2,000 people would come to faith. And at that moment, the, the gospel would be spread all over the known world because we know that as they spoke in tongues of foreign languages, every person on the street heard the message of God delivered in his own tongue. And not even in his own tongue, in his own dialect. It would be as if you were from Hoboken, New Jersey or Jersey City, New Jersey. You know I don't speak like that, even though I was born about seven miles away. But you understand it's a very different tongue. Well, you would hear it being spoken just like that so that you would understand it. This is what God did so that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go all over the world. You understand? That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And you want to know what God's plan was for this world, the amazing love of God, how much he loved you. Look at Revelations chapter 13, verse 8. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Oh, is that a surprise? Is that a surprise? All the inhabitants of the world will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. There it is. There it is. And so as God sat there as part of the Trinity with Jesus and the Holy Spirit before there was a molecule of material, as everything was being put together, as the universe was being created, God knew that his creation would sin and that his creation would need a savior. And before all of that began, Jesus would be denominated that savior. What an amazing God we have. You need to understand this, what God has done for you, how profound it is. And you need to leave here and to teach other people about how profound this is so that they understand the nature of salvation. And so Consequently, God put this all in motion even before he created humanity, even before he created Adam and Eve. It was all planned by him. And so in order, you see, to fully understand John 3.16, we have to understand the indispensable element of grace, unmerited favor, God's mercy for you, because he loves you even though you didn't understand it or need it. And so we need to understand the nature of saving faith. You have to understand this. What does it mean to have saving faith? Because without faith, you see, without faith, 
Without knowing, I have to look up. Yes, I had to look up to see that serpent before, but now I'm looking up at Jesus on the cross. Without that faith, you would not be saved. We know that the scripture tells us that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And you know all these verses that I've cited are all written by the Apostle Paul, who had such a great insight, insight into the gospel of Jesus. Why? Not only was he filled with the Holy Spirit, but he spent 18 months in the Saudi Arabian desert being taught really the theology of God. I believe through Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus taught him in the Saudi Arabian desert. Why do his words echo through the centuries with so profound forcefulness to us even today? Look what he says there in Ephesians 2.8. But it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Faith and salvation inextricably linked together. You didn't do anything to deserve it. He gave it to you because he loved you. And so what does God call upon us to believe? You're saved. What does God call upon you to believe as to salvation? Well, God asks us to believe two things, really, and then calls upon us to do a third. God asks us to believe that we are flawed, that we are sinners, that we are far away from his presence, that we would be lost forever other than his intervention, that we are sinners and that God is holy and absolute and must punish sin. This is precisely why you need a savior. This is the key point. God is absolutely holy and absolutely perfect. And God expects you to know that. The second thing that God asks you to believe is that he loves you, loves you infinitely, despite your sin, and that he has acted to make this life on earth a place where you can spread the gospel, but that much of your Christian walk will not make sense. What do I mean? Oh, John, I thought that once I got saved, I'm going to walk on a bed of roses right to heaven. Oh, this is going to be great. I'm going straight to heaven. Nothing's going to happen to me. I'm going to lead the perfect life. Well, I'm going to say to you, how did it work out for the first 11 guys? They'd given everything to Christ. They walked away from families, from professions. They bowed before him and walked for him for three years, and every single one of the 11 would be sacrificed and lose their lives. Only the apostle John who we know would be put in a vat of boiling oil because his disciple Polycarp would tell us this. It's not in scripture. Put in a vat of boiling oil uh, to die, and after a half an hour, basically doing the doggy paddle and not dying, they yanked him out. He's not dying. And so when Caesar then wanted to inflict capital punishment on him, he was warned, no, under our rule of law, a person can only face capital punishment once. He can be sent to exile, and that's how he got to Patmos, if you're wondering. That's how he got to Patmos. And there, God would allow the, the book of Revelation to be revealed through him 
there in Patmos. But every single one of them suffered and were persecuted and were crucified and would be beheaded. Every single one. There's no bed of roses. And so God is not saving you for this elegant lifestyle of the rich and famous. Really. I don't want you to go that way. God is saving you to expand the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the reason why you're saved. All right? And if you're not spreading the gospel, you need to get on your knees and say, Father, help me. Help me to do what you want. Help me to spread the gospel. Help me to be your hands and feet. Help me to lead the, life, the kind of life that draws people to you, Father. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, which gives great clarity on this issue. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children, for what children are not disciplined by the father? There it is. There's your father. You might have grown up in a family where your father disciplined you. Believe me, my father disciplined the heck out of me, all right? I was getting whacked almost every other day, all right? Really, and in those days, you could hit kids. Now you get sent to jail. But in those days, it was okay. You get whacked, you understand? You get whacked. In fact, I believe that one of the reasons I became a pretty good lawyer is I knew that I had a short period of time between when my father would whack me and I'd give him a defense, he would be ready to hit me, and i go, Dad, wait, wait, don't believe Mommy. It's a bunch of lies. I didn't do any of that stuff. And he'd look, and he'd look, and then boom, you get hit. And you understand, all of you have had that kind of life. You grew up like that. Well, you knew your father loved you. You understand? You knew he loved you. You know, when he said, this hurts me more than you, you, you believed it, even though whether at that time you did not. And so this is the amazing story of love. I'm just a poor human being trying to articulate it. I pray that through the Holy Spirit, these words touch your heart. But this is the story of love. God bankrupted heaven. Can you imagine? He bankrupted heaven. Somebody said it was the darling of heaven he took. Jesus Christ, the prince of all heaven. He took him and brought him to die on a cross for you, for you. And so how can we, how can we walk together in this life without having that be an important part of who we are? And so that is why Romans 8, 28 convicts me and is on my refrigerator, and I hope it's on yours. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. You're saved, all right? Everything that's going to come your way is for your good. God will elevate you. I don't care if things are financially bleak. I don't care if there's bad news on the health front. God is in charge of your life. You've given, him, you've given yourself to him. He holds you here. And no power, no authority, no principality, no demon will ever be able to take you out of his hand. Amen, church. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this message. I thank you for your words. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for this amazing love that you've given us, Father. And now I pray, Lord, as we walk with the Lord every day of our lives, that we advance the gospel, that we have the courage to speak out, that we speak to people who need to hear this world that is lost 
and bereft of you, Father. Help us to raise us up to advance your kingdom in every way. Bless our people, Lord. Be with them this week and bring them back next week to continue the study of your word. As we pour all of this in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen, Lord.